Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. This Monday, uh, you know, my, my family, uh, all of us, uh, uh, were in a funeral service. We cremated uh, my uncle this, this Monday. And, um, you know, it was a real, real sad time. Uh, my uncle uh, passed away suddenly of a stroke uh, last week. Uh, he was 62 and leaves behind his wife and uh, two kids. And uh, the funeral service was, you know, really beautiful. Uh, tons of prayer, tons of scripture. It was really special and... Uh, and it was, it was really beautiful. And uh, of course, tough. Of course, uh, lots to work through, especially for the family. Uh, but, you know, uh, the service was a really beautiful thing. And, um, you know, funerals, I, I don't know about you, but uh, they, they, they get you thinking, doesn't it? You know, you start thinking um, really, you know, what's important in life. Health is really important. You start thinking uh, life is, is short. You want to uh, make the most of your life. You want to um, treasure the time you have with loved ones. It, it gets you thinking. But, you know, when, whenever I go for a funeral service and attend one of these things, um, one of the things that I get thinking about is, um, you know, how, how do I want to be remembered after I, I die? And uh, the, the beautiful thing, you know, was uh, his son, uh, my cousin, gave a eulogy. And it was a really beautiful eulogy, just remembering his father, remembering all that. He was to the family, remembering uh, the life that he lived. And it was, it was a real beautiful, uh, precious moment. You know, I was, I was reading uh, recently, um, a, a Catholic thinker named Ronald Roheiser wrote a book called Sacred Fire. And I highly recommend it, especially if you've been following Jesus for a number of years. And Sacred Fire really speaks into um, you know, uh, your faith journey as a mature believer, as someone who's been following Jesus for a number of years. How do you get to the next level in your spiritual formation? How do you grow deeper in God? And uh, in, in the book, he, he, he wrote this, and this might sound like a generalization. He wrote this, that in your younger years, you know, or in the first half of your life, the primary temptation and struggle you face is lust. And lust would mean lust of the flesh, but also lust, uh, you know, this covetousness for power, for influence, for wealth. In your first half of your life, your primary struggle is lust. But in the second half of your life, the primary struggle that you face is anger. It's anger. And that's his suggestion that in the first half, you, your primary struggle, temptation, battle is lust. But in the second half of your life, more often than not, your primary struggle and temptation is anger. And his presupposition, and, his, and this, is, this comes from his belief that, you know, as you get older, you begin to realize all the wrong things that, that has happened to you in life. As you get older, you begin to realize and understand uh, all the things that people have done against you and uh, all that you've been wronged. And your primary temptation uh, as you get older is to be an angry, bitter person. And uh, he sums up uh, your uh, main trust of spiritual formation in your later years to th- into three words. And the three words are forgive, forgive, forgive. He sums up the main essence of spiritual formation, especially in later years. And that is to forgive, forgive, forgive. Now, you know, what I'm about to say might sound like another generalization and it might sound inaccurate, but this is Andre's opinion. Say Andre's opinion. Thank you for the overwhelming response. I'm so blown away by your response. But, you know, I I don't know about you, but when you meet like an older person, 
um, and by older I mean like really, really well into their years. None of you all fall under that category. None of you all, okay? Older, older, older person. No, 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 no. Older. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Sensi, okay? Right, older, older, older. Like really well into their years. Like they either fall into one of two categories. Like, you know, I, I, especially you know, in my interaction with older people, it's, they either are really, really pleasant or are really, really bitter. Right? I, I don't know whether you, you, you've experienced that. You know, they're either they're just the sweetest, the most tender, loving ama, or they're just like bitter and upset about everything. You know, like, oh, the war. Oh, why you put a remote like that? Oh, my leg. Oh. You know, they, 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 they fall one or two categories. And you know, I, I think it's it's really such uh, it's such a poignant uh, image, right? That we can go one of two ways as we mature, as we age in life. And if you're not intentional with being spiritually formed, if you're not intentional about dealing with some of these things, we we'll end up in one of two places: either we'll grow to be really pleasant, loving, tender people, or progressively through the hurts, through the pains, through the offense of life. And relationships, which we all know, are for the most part painful and hurtful. Not for the most part. They are, or have the tendency to be painful and hurtful. We will grow to be really bitter, angry, offended people in life. So have to have that, that image in your head. Now, what person do you want to grow old to become? How do you want to be remembered in life? What would you like to be said of you as you go by your children, by your grandchildren, by your friends? How would you like to be remembered? As a bitter, unforgiving, offended person or as a pleasant, tender-hearted, Christ-loving person? How would you like to be remembered? On August 20 and September 5, 1977, two spacecraft named Voyager were launched. Eventually leaving the solar system and heading into deep space, they represented a revolutionary and promising breakthrough in scientific discovery about our universe. They also carried another hope, the hope not only of scientific discovery, but also of communication. Each craft carried a golden phonograph record like a time capsule, carefully crafted by Carl Sagan and a team of experts to communicate what life on Earth is like to possible life forms beyond our planet. Aliens, basically. Sagan was given the task of overseeing a committee that determined the content of this record. So picture, okay, on these two spacecraft with the possibility of, uh, of communicating what life on Earth is like. You are to curate what goes into this capsule that might be opened by, you know, your average Martian or Superman. <laughs> Can you imagine that responsibility, okay? Their job was to comb through all of records all records of human history and identify what best defines our collective life. Sagan and his team eventually settled on 115 photographs of our planet, including a woman in a supermarket, go figure, Isaac Newton's system of the world, a father and a daughter, a gymnast on a balance beam, a series of photographs of nature, geography and science. The golden record also included almost 90 minutes of recordings of the world's greatest music. Other sounds included an infant's cry and a mother's soothing words nearly 60 human languages, the whale song, and greetings from the Secretary General of the United Nations and the President of the United States. Now, if you are given a task, check, along with Sagan, to 
to illustrate human civilization in a limited collection, the definitive account of what life on earth is like, what would you include in the golden record? What will you include in the golden record? From your perspective, what is this thing called life? And what does it look like when it flourishes? If you could sum up life on earth through a series of objects and sounds, what would they be? Now think about it. Isn't that a crazy, daunting task? It is, isn't it? Now we all know that life, just like life on earth, Christianity, our Christian faith is complex to say the least. The least. It's intricate, there are many elements, many facets to our faith. But if I would pose that question to you, what would you say okay, is the essence of our faith? If we were to distill the essence of our faith to one, two words, one, two commands, what would they be? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be Christian? What is the Christian faith all about? And my suggestion to you today is that the Christian faith, Christianity, what it means to live like Christ, you can sum it all up in one word, and that is forgiveness. 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 Forgiveness is the essence of the gospel that Jesus preached. It lies at the heart of the Christian faith. From the adulterous woman who deserved to be stoned, to the Lord's prayer, to the sayings of Jesus on the cross, and the Apostles' Creed we profess, it is very much what Christianity is about. I'd like to put it to you that if there's anything that is to be said about Christians, it is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins not just between God and man, but between man and man. An author once wrote this about Christianity. Let's set that slide up. He says this, The Christian life is a prayer of forgiveness. Forgive us as we forgive them. The Christian life is a suffering cry of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And the Christian life is a commission to forgive. If you forgive anyone, they are forgiven. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the gospel. It is the essence of our faith. Dallas Willard once said, Forgiveness is the most difficult spiritual discipline. Forgiveness is the most difficult spiritual discipline. Dallas goes on to say this. Let's have that quote from Dallas. He says this, Forgiveness is not a tiny inward act which a discreet effort of will brings forth in response to specific types of occasions. Rather, it is part or product of an overall orientation of lives of a certain kind, which is there before any occasion or whether or not any occasion ever arises. Now, it sounds so chim, but let me just distill it down to simple statements. What he is implying is that forgiveness isn't just something we do when we face a transgression, but it's very much a core value, an operating system we adopt. This is to say that when something comes up against us, because of the core value of forgiveness, that operating system, the deliberation process is eliminated or at the very least drastically shortened. Forgiveness, grace, and mercy becomes our instinctive response. is isn't just something that we do. It's a people that we are. And if there's anything that is to be said about Christians is that we are a forgiving people. We are a forgiving people. Case in point, uh, this last week, you know, whenever I preach this sermon, and you know, I don't want to make a pattern out of this, but uh, things will come up during the week that will trigger me, you know, will trigger me. And uh, this, this last week after, you know, my, my uncle passed, uh, my mom uh, was in a hotel and, uh, you know, through a series of events, she got into 
an incident. Uh, she, she bumped her head really hard into a glass panel and had a really deep gas right above her eye. And uh, so, you know, uh, she, she went down to the hospital. My brother gives me a call, and I rushed from the hospital. And my mom's okay. Don't worry. My mom is okay. And so I was talking to my mom, and then she was telling me like this uh, about how, you know, when she bumped her head uh, and she started bleeding profusely, uh, the people, uh, instead of wiping the blood away, decided to wipe the glass panel. And so I was like, okay, interesting people. And then she went out, goes out and tries to get help. And uh, instead of getting help, she got yelled at. The, the person at the front desk was like, why are you going to knock the, the thing? Huh? You cannot see her. And, and started raising her voice at my mom. And uh, when they finally got to address her wound and, and attend to her, they, they did it so really roughly till my dad had to step in and stop them. And so uh, she, she was in the hospital and she was like, man, you know, those are interesting people. And now when I, when I heard it, I was overwhelmed with this, like, you know, righteous indignation that I believe was from the Lord, you know. And, uh, and, you know, I might not look it, but I am a mommy's boy at heart. And you don't mess with Andre's mother, you know. And so, so I was like, wow, okay. So I turned to my brother and I said, let's go down now. <laughs> and, so, and so we got in a car and we went down. And, uh, and uh, I, I won't say what hotel, you know. Yeah, and so... Uh, and so on, on the way down, I, I texted Amy, uh, going down to hotel now, going to rain hell on them. And so <laughs> that's my, that's my, I'm going to rain hell on them, you know. And, and, so, uh, and so we got down and the manager wasn't there and we said, we'll be back, we'll come back next day. And I told my brother, I was like, go, you're going to rain hell on them, man. And uh, what I would need you to do is I told him to dress really nicely. And I was like, we need to, you need, we need to dress up so they know that we mean business. And... Uh, <laughs> And so I was talking to my sister on the phone. I was like, I'm going to rain hell on them. She's like, hey, come down, come down. And then I was like, you know, and we're going to mean business. And I'm going to just tell them that Coco is a lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so she was like, wait, you're going to lie? Then she's like, but you're Christian. Then I was like, it's Tuesday. I'll be a Christian on Sunday. <laughs> so, oh, rain hell on them. <laughs> and so I, I, I went down and uh, I was like all set to like destroy them and uh, and, you know, I, the, the person that was rude to my mom was actually one of their managers, if you can imagine it. So I was like, I want to talk to the GM. And so I went down, and it was a real old guy who was really nice and uh, really polite. I was like, wow, chalat. <laughs> and everything just went away. And so quite an anticlimactic story, but that was, that was my week, basically. <laughs> but all that to say, if there was a test on whether, you know, I have forgiveness as a core value, as a default operating system, I have obviously failed. My instinctive response was not grace and mercy, but to rain hell on these individuals. I don't, know what, I don't even know what raining hell means, but in my head, the only vocabulary that makes sense of, my emotion, of the emotions are, I'm going to rain hell, I'm going to descend hell on them, but I don't even know what that means and whether there's a theological place for that. But anyway, all that to say, when you're emotional, your theology goes out the window as well. We all know this, that Christians, we celebrate the forgiveness of sin. Right, do we? Come Easter, come Good Friday, we celebrate the fact that our sins are, are forgiven. That once we were scarlet, but now we are white as snow. That no matter the travesty that you commit on earth, that Christ, what he did on the cross, his blood is sufficient to wash your sins away. We celebrate that fact. On Good Friday, on Easter, we should celebrate it every day. We celebrate the forgiveness of sins through the cross. But we are, as Christians, also to embrace the call 
to continually walk in the way of the cross. And that is forgiveness for all, even our enemies. Even our enemies. Now, I know all sorts of intellectual uh, obstacles that you're going through. You think Nazi straight away, okay? But let's not go there for now. But in the real world of murder, rape, child abuse, genocide, and horrible atrocities, how viable is forgiveness? Is forgiveness just a pious idea that can flourish inside stained glass sanctuaries only to wither in the harsh realities of a secular world where stained glass cannot hide the ugliness of human society? Sure, forgiveness is good in the realm of relatively minor transgressions, but is there a limit to forgiveness? Are there some crimes that go beyond the capacity of forgiveness? Are there some sins that are so heinous that to forgive them would itself be an immoral act? Is forgiveness always possible or even always right? These are not theoretical questions. These are real questions that are forced upon us as we live in a world that is so evil. Now, with the Lenten season in mind, with Good Friday and Easter, Sunday next week, around the corner, even as we ponder about the cross in the next couple of weeks, even as we get into the right frame of mind to celebrate the cross, I'd like to speak to you on the subject this morning of forgiveness, the way of the cross. Forgiveness, the way of the cross. Forgiveness is behind me. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry I doubted you, brother. <laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> Forgiveness, the way of the cross. Now, I first taught this message, uh, as Andrew said, in 2015. And uh, every year, I make it a point to teach it at least once. And you know, we will hear some familiar stories, hear some familiar points. And uh, we actually do that uh, on purpose. Because this, this subject, forgiveness, is something so vital yet often look, overlooked in our spiritual formation. The truth is, life is often hard and painful. Relationships are often hard and painful. And none, therefore, none of us get to opt out of the process of forgiving because we all get hurt. One, 10 out of 10 human beings on earth will get hurt. No one comes into adulthood unwounded. And if you think you are unwounded, chances are you lack self-awareness. And if you think you're unwounded, you're wounded now. And so, <laughs> because of that, our church, as a part of our teaching rhythm, you know, we have a rhythm about the way, uh, of the way we, we structure our teachings. You know, every year we start off with like, a lot of Be With Jesus stuff in the middle. Become like Jesus, we tell you, wake up your idea. And then come October, November, we do, do the works of Jesus. But one of the things that we have inserted into our teaching rhythm is that we'll talk about the subject of forgiveness at least once a year. And as a community, we will do a stock take on how we are doing in the area of forgiveness. Because in life, you will get hurt, you will get offended, you will experience pain. And it's not so much of when you experience pains or if you will experience pains, but it's what you do when you experience pain. Am I making sense? Let's start off with probably my favorite quote of all time from author and pastor Brian Zahn. He says this, Our task is not to protest the world into a certain moral conformity, but to attract the world to the saving beauty of Christ. Our task is not to protest the world into a certain moral conformity, but to attract the world to the saving beauty of Christ. Now, I love that statement. 
It says to me that, it, that Christianity isn't just about getting people to adhere to a certain set of rules and principles, but it is about experiencing the beauty of God, the wonder of God, be captured in awe and wonder. And that compels one to come and die. Mark's gospel tells us that when the Roman officer, the Roman centurion in charge of Jesus' crucifixion saw how Jesus died, he made this tremendous exclamation in verse 39. It says this, And when the centurion, the Roman soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Kept, take note of that, that last couple of nights. When he stood there in front of Jesus and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And the centurion here spoken of is one who, according to Roman custom, presided over the execution. It was his job to make sure that those on the crosses were definitely dead. Like in any other crucifixion, Jesus was mocked, scourged, and ridiculed by the Roman soldiers. Now, if you were to think of me and take a step back, what did this soldier see that led to this amazing confession? He saw how he died and he said, Surely this man must be the Son of God. What was it about the way Jesus died that had such a profound effect on this Roman might it be that Jesus died loving and forgiving his enemies? The Roman centurion standing at the cross had undoubtedly witnessed many crucifixions. It was his job. His job was to supervise and oversee crucifixions. But what was so unique about Christ's crucifixion, about the way he died, that would lead him to make this startling confession? He knew how crucified men died, and they did not die with a prayer of love and forgiveness on their lips. It was the transcendence of forgiving love alone that could persuade a Roman soldier that a crucified Galilean Jew was the Son of God, the saving beauty of Jesus. I would argue that it is forgiveness that makes Christianity beautiful. And that is the great paradox of the Christian faith, that beauty can be found in something so grotesque, so ugly, that beneath the disfigurement of the cross, we see the beauty of Jesus. It's paradoxically the clearest revelation of God. 2,000 years ago, it would seem utterly inconceivable that a Roman cross would someday be an object of beauty. The Roman cross was the gallows, the, gal the guillotine, the electric chair, the lethal injection table of its day, except it was infinitely more gruesome. The Roman cross will become our symbol of faith, love, and beauty. It is utterly miraculous. The act of dying forgiveness, vindicated by the resurrection, sealed the fate of the Roman cross. In time, the cross would cease to be an ugly image of torture, psychological terror, and state-sponsored execution. Instead, it would become the symbol of love, beauty, the symbol of forgiveness. Now, most would believe that this centurion who remained a name in Scripture was actually the martyr Longinus, who after his experience at the cross left for Cappadocia and proclaimed the gospel there until he too was martyred for the sake of the gospel. But the way he was martyred, super intriguing. Follow me, okay? Track me, I'm taking you somewhere. It was said that Longinus left Judea after his experience of the cross to preach about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his native land, Cappadocia. And his two comrades followed him to do the same as well. Christianity began to quickly spread throughout the city and the surrounding villages. When they learned of this, 
the Jewish elders persuaded Pilate to send a company of soldiers to Cappadocia to kill Longinus and his comrades. When the soldiers arrived at Longinus's village, the former centurion himself came out to meet the soldiers and took them into his home. Without letting them know who he was, he invited them back to his own residence. He fed them lavishly, and when they fell asleep, he prepared himself for his execution by praying throughout the night and then clothing himself in the spotlessly white burial guard. As dawn approached, he drew his lawyer companions to his side and instructed them to bury him at the top of a nearby hill. The stage was now set. Moving swiftly, the martyr approached the awakening soldiers and revealed his true identity. He said this, I am Longinus, the man that you seek. Amazed and mortified by their host's honesty, the Romans were not completely off balance. How could they behave a man of such noble character? But even as they protested against the execution, the great-hearted soldier forgave them and insisted that they should carry out their orders to end his life. Catch this, he forgave them and insisted that they carry out their orders. In the end, St. Longinus and the two fellow soldiers who had stood with him at the foot of the cross were taken to Jerusalem and beheaded. Longinus, that centurion, who had seen the transcending forgiving love of Christ as he died on the cross, gave his life in the same manner, with a prayer of love and forgiveness. He who had freely received Christ's forgiveness, freely gave. The point is this, for us who have freely received, we are to freely give. Canadian theologian and pastor Brad Jersek reminds us, he says this, Christ's teachings and Christ's death on the cross are not two separate issues. Christ's way, the narrow path, is the road of loving and forgiving even unto death. And he did not say, let me do that for you. He said, come, die with me. It's not two separate issues. It's one and the same. He forgave us on the cross, our sins. And because of that, we are compelled to do the same for others. Let's have a passage of scripture. Make this sermon legal. Is this too small? It's a bit too small. Get on the app. TheCitySG.app. You'll, you'll figure it out. But let's read this together in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, in, uh, in traditional rabbinic teaching, uh, a Jew was only uh, required to forgive another Jew up to seven times. And so that is to say that when you hit number eight, I'm no longer obligated to forgive you. And it's interesting that he was only obligated to forgive another Jew seven times. And so if you're a non-Jew, if you're a person outside of the Jewish community, I can treat you whatever way I want to. Now, then Jesus says to him, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Jesus is not saying that there is a limit or a cap to forgiveness. He's not saying, hey, keep an Excel spreadsheet on your phone of every person that you know. Put a name on that Excel spreadsheet and then just record all the transgressions that have done against you. And when they hit number 78, bam, vengeance time, rain hell on them. <laughs> Jesus is not saying that there's a cap to forgiveness, but this is a hyperbole. And Jesus is saying that, no, it's, it's not just seven times, but there's no cap. There's no limit to forgiveness. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master, the servant, released him and forgave his debt. Now this is lost on us, you know, but if you understood uh, the culture and, they, and especially uh, finances, 10,000 talent was an astronomical amount. No human being could pay off that amount. Economists would ballpark 10,000 talents to be, to be worth somewhere around $1 trillion today. $1 trillion, okay? And so, it's so funny. Uh, let's look at the last slide. It's so funny because the... the last slide? The slide before? Yep. And so he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, this guy was a servant, so think of a run-of-the-mill blue-collar worker saying, oh, that $1 trillion debt... I will take care of it. I'll find a way to pay you back. Yeah, try maybe in like two or three hundred years or maybe three or four generations of your children. Then you can probably pay that back. And so this was an astronomical amount, an amount that he definitely could not pay back. And the master forgave him his debt. Let's move on in the rest of the story. Next slide. But when the same servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. A denarii would roughly be one day's uh, worth of wages, and so this is about three months' income. Uh, it's a fairly sizable amount, but not as big compared to the number of talents that he owed. And he said, uh, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Startling passage of scripture. In verse 33, it says this, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should you not forgive others even as I have also forgiven you? Now, we operate in a false dichotomy here. For most of us, there are only two options we are placed in that scenario. It's either payment or punishment. If the person can't pay, I'll punish. If I can't punish, the person must pay. It's either payment or punishment. Punishment. But for the Christian, there's a third option, and that is pardon. We couldn't pay for the debt we owe Christ, our sins. Nor were we punished, but we were pardoned. For the Christian, there is a third option. There's always a third option, and that is pardon. Not payment, not punishment. Pardon. During the Armenian Genocide of 1915, one and a half million Armenians were murdered by the Ottoman Turks, and millions more were raped and brutalized and forcibly deported. From the Armenian Genocide comes a famous story of a Turkish army officer who laid raid upon the home of an Armenian family. The parents were immediately killed and their daughters raped. The girls were then given to the soldiers, and the officer kept the oldest daughter for himself to be a sex slave. Eventually, this girl was able to escape and later trained to become a nurse. In an ironic twist of fate, she found herself working in a ward for wounded Turkish officers. 
One night, by the dim glow of a lantern, she saw among her patients the face of the man who had murdered her parents and so horribly abused her and her sisters. The doctor said, without exceptional nursing, he would die. And that is what the Armenian nurse gave, exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, you would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse and asked, have we met? She replied softly, yes. After a long silence, the officer asked, why didn't you kill me? He realized who she was. And the Armenian Christian nurse replied, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. She simply said, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. An author in writing about this story will go on to say, for this Christian, no further explanation was necessary. For her, forgiveness was not an option. It was a requirement. As Christians, forgiveness is not an option. It is a requirement. For all of us who have freely received of the grace of God, the forgiveness of our sin, forgiveness is no longer an option. It is a requirement. It is a requirement. Martin Luther King, you know, in, in one of his famous sermons, says that for the Christian, it's not a choice between forgiveness and non-forgiveness, but it's either forgiveness or non-existence. And by non-existence, he is referring to our faith. You don't have an option between forgiveness or non-forgiveness. It's either we forgive or our faith is non-existent. Question for us today is, do we carry the same conviction? Do we see the practice of forgiveness as synonymous with being a Christian? When grappling with the question of forgiveness, we eventually have to grapple with the question of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's all too easy to reduce being Christian to a conferred status, the result of having accepted Jesus as your personal saviour. But that kind of minimalist, conmarie approach is a gross distortion of what the earliest followers of Jesus understood being Christian to mean. It was not just a status symbol, but it was a way of life. And that way is the way of the cross, the way of forgiveness. It should be obvious from an honest reading of the Gospels that Jesus expected his disciples to master the lessons he taught and actually live a life centered on love and forgiveness. My suggestion to you this morning is that if we enter the Christian faith to find forgiveness, then we must live with the assumption that in order to fully embrace the life of a believer, we must continue in faith to forgive people just as we have been forgiven. To be an authentic follower of Jesus, we have to embrace the centrality of forgiveness in the Christian faith. And not just that, the centrality of forgiveness in everyday life. Forgiveness is integral to our discipleship to Jesus. We live in a world polluted by sin and shame, and relationships in this broken world often marked by disappointment, loss, and pain. And the call of God throughout Scripture is to release those who sin against us from our personal right to collect on a moral debt for their offense. Now, when we think of forgiveness, we think the big transgressions, we think murder, we think cheating, we think big, big, massive transgressions. But forgiveness is not just something that pertains to that, but it pertains to everyday life. That you live with forgiveness as an operating system. That in the daily interactions of life, big or small, forgiveness is your base. It's your instinctive response. If you drive in Singapore, you are presented with opportunities to practice forgiveness every day. <laughs> right, you know? Amen. And, uh, 
It's true. From your server getting your order wrong to your Grab driver taking the obviously longer route and making you pay for the ERP and locking the doors. <laughs> Will we extend mercy or rage? Will we extend mercy or rage? Or like to take it a step further, will we choose to be Christian or non-Christian in our response? I love this definition of forgiveness by Dr. Gary Brashears, who is a New Testament scholar. He says this, Forgiveness is my personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt, to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving that back the pain that they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with the help of God. That last line. I absorb the pain into myself with the help of God. I know this is trippy. This is, what, what is this? What kind of statement is this? I, I'd like to share with you a story that best illustrates this. And this is the story of Mehmet Ali Agaka and Pope John Paul II. For many people, Catholics and Protestants alike, Pope John Paul II was the living imitation of Christ. John Paul imitated Christ in his humility, in his embrace of the poor and oppressed, and in his patient enduring of suffering. But he most fully imitated Christ when he forgave the man who had attempted to murder him. On May 13, 1981, the unthinkable happened in Rome's St. Peter's Square. Mehmet Ali Agaka, a Turkish Muslim, approached Pope John Paul II as he traveled in an open motorcade. Standing only a few feet away, he fired a gun several times, critically wounding the Pope as four bullets struck his torso, right arm and left hand. Ali Agaka was immediately apprehended and the gravely injured Pope was rushed to the hospital. Pope John Paul II would spend 22 days in hospital recovering from the attack. In his first statement following the attempted assassination, John Paul requested that people pray for his brother, Ali Agaka, whom he has sincerely forgiven. Two years later, John Paul II visited him in prison and in a private room, the two men sat knee to knee, face to face, and the Pope holding the hand of his would-be assassin and forgiving him like the attempted assassination. Let's look at the, the previous slide, the two photographs. There are two iconic photographs that emerge from, these, uh, from the, the entire ordeal encounter of Pope John Paul II and Mehmet Ali Agaka. The first photograph is the photograph of the shocked face of the Pope as his papal rope was splattered with blood just after being shot. The second is the photograph of the shocked face of Mehmet Ali Agaka as the Pope met with him in prison and forgave him. In both pictures, a shocked face seemed to be asking the same question. Why? Two iconic images, two questioning faces. The first registering the shock of being the victim of unexpected and undeserved violence. And the second registering the shock of being the recipient of unexpected and undeserved forgiveness. The second picture, the one of John Paul II for forgiving Ali Agaka, was on the cover of the January 9, 1984 issue of Time magazine with the caption, Why Forgive? Christian recording artist Steve Taylor wrote a song about the entire thing which addressed the question posed on the cover of Time magazine, Why Forgive? He says this, I saw a man, he was holding the hand. They had fired a gun at his heart. I saw the eyes and the look of surprise as he left an indelible mark. Follow his lead, let the madness recede when we shatter the cycle of pain. Come find release, go make your peace. I saw a man with a hole in his hand who could offer the miracle cure. Oh, where we live to forgive. That miracle cure for ending the endless cycle of pain, of revenge, is to 
forgive. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus calls us to is one that forgives even when people don't deserve it. And that was what Pope John Paul II did for Mehmet Ali Agaka. Now, in all honesty, in another time, a pope who was attacked by a fanatic would have responded with his own form of violence, which in all likelihood would have resulted in a holy war. Violence would have won, vengeance would have won, Satan would have won. But Pope John Paul II did not respond to violence with violence, vengeance with vengeance. Instead, he imitated Christ, took the blow, loved his enemy, forgave his assailant, overcame evil with good, and turned the ugliness of violence into the beauty of Christ's light forgiveness. And so here's my question for you today. Who is your Ali Agaka? Who has fired the gun of hate at your heart? Hopefully it's not literal bullets, but figurative. Hopefully you've not been shot with bullets. But who hasn't been shot in the heart with hateful words? With words that have the potential to poison your mind and ruin your soul? Will you escalate the violence and perpetuate the cycle of revenge either in action or attitude or will you imitate Christ. In Matthew 17, we read of the transfiguration of Jesus. The Bible accounts that when Jesus was transfigured on Mount Tabor, his face shone like the sun. And when he came down the mountain, he healed a little boy who had been tormented by demons. And the Jewish community would commemorate that day, Transfiguration Day, on the 6th of August every year, the Feast of Transfiguration. In an ironic and twisted poetic series of events some 74 years ago on the 6th of August 1945 Transfiguration Day an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan those who experienced it and lived to tell about it described it in a similar fashion it began with a flash brighter than the sun the bombing of Hiroshima was the world's first use of a weapon of mass destruction in the seaport of 25 250,000 people 100,000 people were either killed instantly or doomed to die within a few hours from Cain to Abel, to Hiroshima, to 9-11, to ISIS, the human race has been caught in an endless cycle of tit for tat. You make a sarcastic remark against me, I post something about you on Facebook. You screw up my chances of promotions, I spread rumors about you. You commit an act of terror against me, I invade the country. You don't have to be an expert or genius to see where this is going. Pain, struggle, violence, death, hell on earth. A cycle of revenge. That often looks like this. It looks like this. We get hurt, we get offended, we embrace unforgiveness, and we retaliate. Revenge. Now, it might not look like dropping a bomb, shooting bullets of hate, but we all know that we have experienced hurt, offense, embrace unforgiveness, and retaliate in ways it may be a small comment, sarcastic remark, slapping a person, whatever have you. But we all, in some way, at some point in our life, have partook in this cycle of vengeance, of revenge, that is deep in human society, deep in the bowels of the human condition. This is the cycle that we see played out on earth, that we see played out on news reports every day. The cycle of revenge. Hurt, offense, unforgiveness, revenge. Hurt, offense, unforgiveness, revenge. An endless cycle of torment, of revenge, of hell, on earth that goes back and forth, back and forth, and perpetuates itself from generation to generation. But the good news that we have, the gospel, 
And this is why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. The good news that we have as followers of Jesus is that we no longer have to participate in this cycle anymore. The good news for us is that through the way of Jesus, we see hope in a better way. Jesus broke that cycle on the cross. Hear me in this. Jesus broke that cycle on that cross. He was hurt. He could be offended. He could embrace unforgiveness, but he chose not to partake in revenge. He put an end to all of it by releasing forgiveness, not just to the men who were physically there, but to you and me. This is what Jesus did on the cross. This is the way of the cross, and this is the way we are to live. When we choose to forgive those who intentionally and maliciously harm us, instead of perpetuating the cycle of revenge, we become a living imitation of Jesus Christ. And as we do this, we help flood a world hell-bent on paybacks with a forgiveness that washes away sin. Here's my point. Forgiveness is not weakness. It is the power of God. The power of God to overcome evil by depriving evil a host for retaliation. It is the power of God. This is not weakness. It's the power of God that deprives Satan, evil, that cycle of revenge, a host for retaliation. Are you hearing me in this? In verse we close shortly, I'd like to share with you five beliefs on, on uh, forgiveness. I do want to recognize that the subject of forgiveness is complex, to say the least, and very, very personal. For some of you here, you've experienced atrocities, stuff has happened to you, and I can't even begin to imagine the pain that you have gone through or are going through now. But at the same time, I'm, I'm so convicted by the words of Scripture that calls for all of us to forgive no matter the circumstances we face in life, no matter the injustices that we've experienced, we are to forgive because that's the way of the cross. And that's the way of the Christian. But I'd like to share with you our five empowering beliefs on forgiveness and I hope this would correct some misconceptions and give you the courage to forgive. The first point is this. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It is a continual process. The way I see it is this, that forgiveness looks like dropping the stones of accusation. And it's a continual process because the stones are right in front of you and you can choose to pick it up and cast it once again. You may have to keep forgiving. It's not a one-time event. It is a continual process. Every time you get reminded of the trauma, the mistake, the transgression, you are presented with the opportunity to pick up the offense once again. And in that moment, you can choose to partake in the cycle of vengeance or you can choose to forgive once again. The next one is this. Forgiveness is not a means of endorsement. It is a choice to love. When Jesus forgave the adulterous woman, he did not say, hey, adultery is okay. Forgiveness does not negate sin. Forgiveness is not the measuring stick of justice. It is the place where we invite Jesus to come and reframe, heal, lead, and help us move forward. That is what forgiveness does. It's not a means of endorsement. It's a choice to love. Next point is this. Forgiveness is not an end to pain. It is the beginning of healing. It is the beginning of healing. And we, we all know this for a fact that we can choose to forgive, but the pain of the offense is still there. And you know, much, much like you know, if you experience a wound, you, know, you, you fall down, you get injured, you get it treated, you apply the balm and you put the plaster on, you, know, you have been treated and that's where time comes in and you embrace the process of healing. Forgiveness is not an end to pain. It's the beginning of healing. The next slide is this. Forgiveness keeps no record of wrong. It restores 
the standard. The word for repentance has multiple meanings, but in English, the word for repentance simply means repent, to go back to the top. Repentance, in a way, means that you are restored to where you have fallen from. That means to say that when you forgive someone, you have no right to bring up the offence once again because you've chosen to restore the person to, from where they've fallen. And a practical thing we do in relationships is that we don't keep a binder of all the mistakes that we've made and bring it up and reference it. Am, am I making sense? But hear, hear me in this. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not always allowing someone who is toxic and painful back into your life. It is different from trust. Trust has to be earned and proven. There is a healthy Christ-like response to setting boundaries and living within them. It's not the same as trust, but it's restoring a place, a person to a place of love, acceptance. The last point is this. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. It actually allows us to remember. We often hear the phrase, forgive and forget, or to forgive, we must forget. I like to break that paradigm and the mindset. Forgetting, you can't do intentionally. How many of you have tried really hard to forget something? And when you try really hard to forget something, you actually remember it, right? Because you're thinking about forgetting the thing and it's counterintuitive and it doesn't make sense. Forgetting is not an active thing. It's passive. And forgiveness is never a passive thing. It's an active, intentional act. (coughs) Forgiving is not the same as forgetting. It's always a choice, a conscious act. But here's the point I'd like to bring up. Forgiveness actually doesn't call us to forget. It actually allows us to remember in a weird and strange way. I'd like to close off with a final story. Charles Roberts was a 32-year-old dairy truck driver. He and his wife Amy had three young children. The family attended church, but Roberts was a deeply bitter man. Nine years earlier, their firstborn child, a daughter, had died 20 minutes after her birth. Of course, Charles and Amy grieved. Nevertheless, Charles Roberts could have had a good life with his loving wife and their three children. He instead allowed bitterness over the death of his daughter to, continue, to consume him and turn him into a monster, a ticking time bomb. <coughs> Roberts was angry with God, angry with life, and angry with himself. In his mind, someone had to pay. According to the survivors, Roberts said, I am angry at God and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. He took my daughter and so I'm going to take some girls. Charles Roberts' soul had become a tornado of destruction and on a sunny fall morning, he entered a small one-room Amish schoolhouse armed with a handgun, a shotgun, a rifle and two knives and 600 rounds of ammunition. Driven by head, Roberts had ceased to be human and now became a monster desperately trying to erase the image of God from his own soul. Entering the schoolhouse, Roberts ordered the children to lie face down at the front of the room near the backboard. The teacher and the boys were allowed to leave but he barricaded doors and kept 10 girls in there. 10 girls at age 6 to 13. He had them lie on the floor and he said this and he announced, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. And at 11.05 a.m., three shotgun blasts were followed by rapid fire pistol shots. Charles Roberts had shot all 10 girls in the head. Five dead, five survived. Roberts completed his descent into the abyss by turning the gun on himself. Unspeakable evil had invaded the tranquility and brought life-shedding tragedy to the Amish community of nickel mines. Ten little girls shot in the head. Five dead, five in critical condition. It doesn't get any worse than that. And this could have been the end of the story. 
It could have been only the horror story of a madman and his senseless massacre. But this was not the end. As the world shuddered from the news of the Nickel Mines tragedy, the world would soon be stunned by a demonstration of radical forgiveness. Forgiveness that transcended tragedy. Within hours of the killings, a group of men from the Amish community went to Amy Roberts' house to express forgiveness. They brought gifts of food to her family, telling them that they had forgiven her husband and held no animosity towards her. They also promised to help her in the future by providing for her what she might need. Five days later, when the Roberts family gathered to bury the gunman in the cemetery of Georgetown United Methodist Church, more than half of the 75 mourners were from the Amish community. Some of the Amish mourners who had gathered around Amy Roberts and offered her hearts of support were parents who just days earlier had buried their own children. A Roberts family member described it in this way. They embraced Amy and the children. There were no grudges, no hard feelings, only forgiveness. It's just hard to believe that they were able to do that. Only forgiveness. The Amish had only one way to respond to the most wicked transgressions. Only forgiveness. And thus, days later, the, the storyline changed. Earlier, the news reported of the Nickel Mines tragedy of a senseless, mad gunman who took the lives of five girls and critically wounded five others. But days after, after this amazing demonstration of forgiveness, the news headline wrote, The Nickel Mines Miracle. Forgiveness changed the storyline from the horror of murder to the miracle of forgiveness. From the horror of murder to the miracle of forgiveness. And the miracle of Nickel Mines is an echo of what happened on the cross, the miracle of the cross. How is it that we do not speak of the cross as tragedy, but as something of beauty? It's because on Good Friday, Jesus changed the storyline. When he chose to absorb the blow and respond only with forgiveness, this change in storyline on Good Friday is what the Father endorsed on Easter Sunday in the resurrection. The cross, being the darkest hour of human history, through forgiveness, became beautiful and worth celebrating. The natural instinct temptation in the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred is to give back in kind. You hate me, so I will hate you. But we are invited to something higher. At the very heart of the gospel of Jesus, at his moral center, lies an invitation to go beyond, beyond hate, beyond our natural instincts, but to embrace forgiveness. And this makes me think of the, the famous saying that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. To err is human, but to forgive is is divine. And what the writer was tapping into here is that we all need to forgive, but we all need help to forgive. And the good news for us is that through the cross, through these stories that we just heard, through the, the community that we are part of, that we have what it takes, the grace to forgive, even the worst of transgressions. That today you can be free of offense, of hate, the endless cycle of pain or vengeance, you can be free of that today. You know, we all know for a fact that these things, you know, though we shove it down under the surface, they affect all of our relationships from that occasional outburst to that nagging thought, to that feeling, that constant feeling of animosity towards an individual that you can't seem to shake away and you can't seem to articulate. But through Jesus and his cross, we can forgive not only that, we can be free and experience life 
and life in all its fullness. And that is what the cross has accomplished for you and me. And that is the life that Jesus wants us to live.